Well, we are in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. We're going to knock two out this Sunday. Uh, we've been in the book of Acts, and we're going to make a shift now. Uh, we have started out in the book of Acts. We've seen the church has, uh, has multiplied rapidly as the apostles have preached and as the... Um, as people have been getting saved, uh, the, the term we heard last week was they were saved constantly. They were constantly adding people to the church. That's pretty awesome. That's not just a Sunday morning thing. That's every day of the week, every hour of the day type of thing. God was growing the church. It had grown, uh, most people estimate that by the time we get to chapter 6, it's about 25,000 or more people. They have come from all over the world to, to their Jewish people who came to Jerusalem to, to, for the Passover and then, or yes, for the Passover and then stayed for Pentecost. And that's when everything broke out and, and they didn't want to leave and rightfully so. When God is moving, people don't want to leave. But God's going to set in place a time for them to leave, and it's going to be called persecution. And they're going to start taking the gospel out. And in chapter 6, we're going to see the first person outside of the apostles that God is going to use to take the gospel to a people group other than the Hebrews, the natives of Jerusalem. And so we're going to read today about a young man by the name of Stephen. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 1 through 7 to start out with. Now at this time, the disciples were increasing in number. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicantor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte, from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Wow, what a time to be alive! With, uh, with all that was going on, now 
Can you imagine the logistics of trying to make sure 25,000 people have a place to sleep, have a place to eat, that, that have their needs met? That would be pretty big. Especially in a town like Jerusalem, you know, it's not like, well, let's go to, let's go to the Holiday Inn. No, they don't have a Holiday Inn. Let's, all take, let's take everybody out to Izzy's. You know, find, find an all-you-can-eat buffet. That didn't happen. And so here they were trying to make everything happen. And they did a pretty good job of it. This is the first complaint that they had, that things weren't working well. And so what was, what was the problem that they had? Well, they had the Hellenistic Jews. Who were these Hellenistic Jews? Well, they're, they're probably twofold. Uh, there was actually a, a Hellenistic simply means Greek. There was a synagogue in Jerusalem that spoke Greek. Uh, it was in response to a gentleman by the name of Alexander the Great. In the mid 300s BC, Alexander showed up in Jerusalem and he had a great effect on Jerusalem. And so these Hellenistic Jews would have been either Jews that had traveled from Greek speaking countries and came and they worshiped in the synagogue of the Greeks, or they would have been leftovers from when Alexander were there that, were, that learned how to speak Greek, they followed Greek cultures, and so they had their own synagogue within Jerusalem. And there were widows there. Uh, the, these folks would have come and, and maybe said, hey, we want to be buried in Jerusalem. That would be a great honor for any Jewish person. And so we had widows that were being overlooked. Now, why were they being overlooked? Well, probably because they didn't really have a way to communicate. Most of the people, most of the teaching that would have been done at that time was done in Aramaic. They spoke Greek. They, they may not have had a, a way of sharing what their needs were. So when this comes to the attention of the, of the uh, apostles, the apostles are like, whoa, okay, let's take care of it. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? That's what they've been doing. If there's a need, let's meet the need. Who can meet this need? And remember Barnabas said, oh, I can help meet the need. I'm going to sell my property and I'm going to, and I'm going to come and bring the money to help, help take care of this need. People responded, but if you don't know the need, if there's a breakdown somewhere, in this case, probably by simply their language, they didn't, they didn't know how to express that need. And when it becomes to the elders, the, the apostles, what's, they're like, let's fix it. Isn't that the way it should be? Now, I want you to notice they didn't form a committee. Right? They just said, let's fix it. They said, let's, and how did they fix it? Well, I want you to understand, the first thing that they did is the apostles got their priorities right. Did, did you notice what it said about the apostles? Uh, look at uh, verse 2. So the twelve summoned the congregation to the, to the, of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us 
to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. That was their first priority. They said, Why, we're not, that's not our gift. Our gift is not taking care of the everyday needs that, that are going on out there. That's pretty smart. Now, now I've, been, I've been the pastor in smaller churches before where you're, where you're the janitor and the secretary and, and, and everything else. But that's not the way it's designed. Uh, if you remember when we took our class on, or we did the series on spiritual gifts, that there are spiritual gifts for the, for the church and, uh, and those are given for what? To equip, come on, help me out, in Ephesians, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. If I had a candy bar, I'd give you one. The, the, the job of the apostles is to equip the disciples for the work of the ministry. Just as it is the, the job of, of the pastor and the evangelist and the prophet and the and the teacher, their job is to equip the church for the work of the ministry. And these guys said, yeah, we're, we're, this, we're not supposed to be down there making sure each one of these Greek widows get the equal amount that they need. That was their first priority. Their second priority shows up in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They said, that's our job, and we will do it. And so they said, we, we got a plan. I want you to choose men with the right qualities. They chose men with the right qualities. Did you notice what they they the qualities that they put forth? In verse 3, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. How big was the problem? Well, the problem was apparently big enough for seven men. I don't know how they calculated that, but they looked at the problem. How many Greek widows are there? How many people are there that need to be served that are not being served correctly? They said, okay, seven can handle that. And so they said, pick seven men. They didn't say, you know, once again, let's go form a committee to decide how big the problem. They, they just made a decision and they moved forward. These ladies needed to be fed. They needed to get their food allotment. It wasn't time to wait around and, and train people. They said, pick seven men. They said, people of good report, right? Good reputation. Boy, does that make you want to live right? Good reputation. What do people say about that person? Do they say good things? Or, or how, how are they... How do they look, if you go down and talk to their business partners, how do, they, how, do, how do they stack up in their business? You know, do, do, do people look at them and say, man, that, that, that guy is, is so cheap that, you know, are they of good reputation? 
And then secondly, full of what? The Holy Spirit. Man, and we could, we could go back and we could look in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit. We could look at how we function in the Spirit. But they were full of the Holy Spirit. When people looked at them and, and they had a question, a spiritual question, they had also what? Wisdom. They had wisdom. Oh, that's pretty good to have. Anybody read uh, Proverbs lately? Man, there's all kinds of really good stuff in Proverbs about wisdom. I mean, whole chapters. Pastor Hunter's been teaching the, uh, the, the junior high high schoolers through Proverbs. You're on what, number 50? 70 something. That's awesome. Our young people are learning what Proverbs has to say, and one of those things is about wisdom. They're, these guys are smart enough to figure this out. Because you know what they did? When they, when they, after they laid hands on them, they said, go do it. Do you realize you never hear anything else about this in chapter, or in, that we, the, with the Greeks having a problem? They said, go, t- go, do it. And then they let them do it. Uh, they didn't go, oh, let's see, let's micromanage this to death. You know, the job is to equip the saints and then let them do it. And so they, choose, they chose men with the right qualities. In 1 Timothy 3, it talks about deacons. Uh, now, we're, Paul's writing this years down the road. And obviously this became kind of a, 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 uh, a way for the church to function. Because Paul, before this, talks about elders. He says, elders, you want to appoint elders, and what is their job? Their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Right? So we have elders, that that's their job. And then we have deacons who are supposed to do the serving. In 1 Timothy 3, it says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sword gain. That would be somebody who has a good reputation, right? But holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, these men must also first be tested and let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Timothy is going to, or Paul and Timothy is going to give us a little bit bigger picture. But it's the same principle. They had the right qualities to do the job. You put the right people in the right places. And that's a God thing because uh, when we talk about our spiritual gifts, and what does the Bible say about the spiritual gifts? Everybody has one, and they're to be used for the body of Christ. And every one of us have a different function. Now, some of you are elbows, okay? And some of you are ears. And some of you are big toes. And, and if we lose any one of those, we have a problem, don't we? If the elbow doesn't work, 
it's kind of hard to hug somebody. Pretty easy to point fingers, right? But if the elbow doesn't work, but boy, if that elbow works correctly, you can reach out and grab something. You can pull it back in. You can do all, and we're all part of the body of Christ. We all have a gift, and God gives that gift so that it can be used within the body. And when we do that, the body works well. And so we, we see that they were applying the right principles that God has for us. But an interesting thing is, is happening now. God is going to, up until now, we've seen the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. The apostles have been preaching. They have been performing miracles. Matter of fact, we saw where Peter, people were just coming out and putting people out in the roadway so a shadow would fall on people and they would get healed. That's pretty cool. But so far, that's been the main picture, right? The apostles. Now, they're going, they need some men who speak Greek. And I want you to notice that all seven of these people that are named, those are all Greek names. They, put, they, they picked people who spoke Greek to take care of problem with the Greek widows. Pretty smart, right? Notice they didn't pray for somebody to get the gift of tongues to go talk to them. No, they picked somebody who spoke their language to go talk to them. That's pretty smart. And, and these people that speak Greek are going to open up the door because God knows what's coming. God knows the persecution is coming. Matter of fact, we're going, we've already been identified in a small way with, with the Sanhedrin arresting and beating the apostles, but it's going to grow larger now. We're going to see how it grows. The opposition grows. But, but God is preparing people that speak Greek to go to other people that speak Greek. And the person that we see identify here is Stephen. We also see another name that we're going to see uh, in, a, in a week or so. And that's a guy by the name of Philip. Here's two guys. They're appointed as deacons. But God says, you know what? I'm going to use that as that these men must also first be tested. I'm going to test them out. I am going to test them out to make sure that they're ready for this. You know, the elders here at this church, we have a, we have a process in which if we're going to bring another elder on board, they spend a year in what we call the servant leader program. So they come and they sit on the board. They don't have a vote. They are not an elder. But they send a year with us. And during that time, we go through a training program called the Biblical Eldership Training Program. And, and for a year, they get to see how it works. And we get to watch them. And they watch us. Before we say, you know what, we're ready, they're ready for this. And not everybody that goes through the servant leader program ends up being an elder. There are some who say, you know what, 
this is a bit much because it is. It's a high calling. But, but things happen when we allow ourselves to be in ministry like Stephen did. You know, Stephen could have made a lot of excuses. <laughs> oh, no, don't call on me. You know, I'm too busy. But, but Stephen said, he, it said, first of all, he was what? Twice they've said he's a man full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And that was Stephen. And because Stephen surrendered and said, yes, I will be part of the program here. I will be part of taking care of these Greek widows. All of a sudden, God began to use Stephen in the Greek community. So let's look at verses 8 through 15. Acts 6, 8 through 15. It is going to change, I promise. There it goes. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and of Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit which he was speaking. And when they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God, they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against the Holy Spirit, against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that the Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. You see, sometimes when you begin to serve, God will lead you in revealing more spiritual gifts. And that's what he did with Stephen. And that's what he's going to do with Philip. Here's a little, if you're wondering, I just want to serve God. I want to be in the center of God's will. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Find some place God's working and jump in with both feet. Just find some place. If God's working in Awanas, say, I want to be an Awanas volunteer. If God's working in the Sunday school classes, I want, to, I want to help in Sunday school. Wherever God is working, jump into the middle of it and say, okay. And quite often, God's going to say, wow, I've just been waiting for you to do this because I'm going to give you the confidence you need to do something even greater. And here's Stephen. Stephen just, he said, okay, God, I just signed up to help some Greek widows. And where does he find himself? He finds himself in the middle of the Greek synagogue 
talking to these people from, from places that spoke Greek, that were under the Greek influence, and he starts giving a debate. He starts preaching to them. And they, they try to argue with him, and he's like, well, and being full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, he blows them out of the water every time. They're like going, how can, you know, we don't like this guy, but look at the miracles that are happening by him. We can't tell, we can't do anything to stop him. And so what do they do? They decide we're going we're gonna to bring false witnesses in. Now, this is not the first time they've done this. They did it with Jesus. They did it with others. Now they're doing it with Stephen. But Stephen, because he's full of the Holy Spirit, God gives him the words that he needs. I want you to look at Luke 21, 14 and 15. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. That's exactly what was happening. What did it say about the people who argued against him? Verse 10, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And because of that, they got really upset. And so we're going to find that, that there's going to be Increased conviction bringing increased opposition. There, this, the conviction of God, the conviction of God is working mightily here. I want you to notice in verse 15, it says, And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council, all, okay, I want, so hold on to that for a second, all that were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Wow. Now, why did I say all? Sadducees did not believe in angels. But what was happening in the Sadducees, remember from our past lesson, Sadducees were made up of what, what line? The priestly line. The Sadducees were made up of the priestly line. Look at verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many, who? Priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The the Sadducees were getting saved. Their number was dwindling. And some of them are like going, are we wrong? Could we have gotten this wrong all along? Oh no, we're Sadducees. We're better than, they're, they're the ones that are wrong. But it says that all of them saw his face as the face of an angel. Boy, would that be convicting? I don't want to be sitting here when the angel comes down and is speaking through somebody. They were, 
They were convicted, and with that conviction comes opposition. And, and as we get to uh, ver- chapter 7, it says, The high priest said, Are these things so? And then he's going to give Stephen a chance to preach. Now, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 50, is Stephen's defense. And I'm not going to read it, go through it uh, line by line today, because what, what Stephen's going to do is, is a stroke of brilliance. Stephen takes them right to where they think they are most comfortable, which is the Holy Spirit. Or, excuse me, the, it, it, through the Holy Spirit, he is going to take them back to the Old Testament. Oh, well, they're, they're people of the law. They knew the Torah. Forwards and backwards, many of them would memorize it. And so he's going to say, hey, guys, listen. Let me take, back, take you back to where you think you know what's going on. And he takes him back and he, he starts all the way back at Abraham. Hear me, brethren, fathers, the God of glory appeared out of our father Abraham because that's what they were proud of. We are Hebrews of the Hebrews. I can trace myself back to whatever line we have. And he says, listen, I'm going to take you back to Abraham and, and if you understand that Abraham followed God by what? Faith. He followed God by faith because God gave him a promise and, and Abraham didn't see that promise fulfilled, did he? He never saw a great nation. He never saw, as a matter of fact, it's going to say, he didn't even own one square foot in the promised land. He said, God didn't. But Abraham, by faith, trusted what God said. And then he's going to go on and says, and then God sent this guy by the name of Joseph, one of, the, one of your patriarchs, one of the 12 sons. And he sent Joseph. And Joseph had some dreams, Right? Ooh, they hated him because he had the dreams. Because in the dreams, what did it say? You guys are all going to bow down to me. And so what did they do to Joseph? Well, let's just get rid of him. Let me, so we're going to so, sell him off to the Midianite traders. And, and it says that God used Joseph to sustain you guys. To sustain Israel for 400 years so you could grow to be a great nation. And yet his brothers despised him for it. They tried tried to get rid of him. And then he says, and then I sent Moses. And, And you know, the story of Moses is pretty interesting because a lot of people forget about this little thing about why, why did they put Moses in the basket? To save his life. But, but that's just a, that's a gamble, isn't it? Is the crocodiles going to come eat him? Maybe. Who found him? Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, wow. His mama gets to, gets to nurse him until he's old enough, and then he places him where? In Pharaoh's house. 
for 40 years. He's raised in Pharaoh's house. Now this is a little interesting piece, folks. Pharaoh did not have a son. So who was next in line? Joseph. Not, I mean, excuse me, Moses. Man, I'm getting them. Moses is next in line. God wanted to save the, save the Israelites by Moses on the throne. But what happened to Moses? He goes out one day, kills an Egyptian, thinks, it's okay, I'll just bury him up with sand. The next day he goes out, and what did the Israelites say? Are you going to kill me like you killed your brother, like you killed the other Egyptian? And they, they would not accept him to be the leader. And so he, ru- he runs off. He's got a price on his head. He runs off, and instead of going up onto the throne to, of Pharaoh, he becomes an outcast. He becomes a sheep herder for 40 years out in the desert. He becomes a sheep herder. And then God says, okay, now they're ready for you to save them. And God sent Moses, and even in the desert, when God was providing manna for them, when God would provide quail for them, when God would provide water for them, the Israelites grumbled. And they got to the promised land, and God said, go in and take it. And they said, oh, no, there's giants in the land. So it says, fine, 40 more years. Wandering in the desert. You guys just keep adding these 40s, don't you? 40 years wandering in the desert before they finally get to make it in. And then he wraps up his entire sermon with Isaiah 66. Now I want you to remember who he's saying this to. This is the council. Where are they at? They're at the temple. What had been the, what had been the accusation? What did they say in verse, uh, in verse 7? They took him to the council. They brought these false witnesses. This man, in verse 13, this man incessantly speaks against the holy place, the temple, and the law. And we heard him say that the Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. We're the keepers of the temple. We're the keepers of the law. And so he ends up with Isaiah chapter 66. And he only gives, this is interesting, he only gives them the first verse and half of the second. So I want you to see what the all all of these two verses say. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I might rest? For my hands. Oh, it wasn't the elders' hands. It wasn't the Sadducees or the Pharisees. He says, my hands have made all of these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. That is where Stephen stops. They would have memorized this passage. 
What does the last section say? But to this one I look, to him who is humble and of contrite heart and who trembles at my word. Do you think that the council that sat there did not finish the second verse? They would have memorized it. He didn't have to say it. Sometimes we don't have to, all we have to do is, is God begins to speak to us and we finish the sentence. And that's exactly what they did. But to this one I will look. Him who is humble, were they humble? Oh no. Our temple, we built this. We are the keepers of the law. Contrite spirit? Or who trembles at my word? That was his hook. That was where he left them. He gave them these words. And it's, it just totally, totally convicted them. Look at verses 51 to 53. You men who are stiff-necked, stiff and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? These, they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one and whose betrayers and murderers you have become. And you have received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. He's not pulling any punches here. He's pointing them backwards, right? He says, your father, your fathers killed the the prophets when they didn't want to hear. And you're just like them. Who's the one that announced the coming of the righteous one? John the Baptist, right? Wasn't that his job? What happened to John the Baptist? He was beheaded. Now, even though Herod was part of that, the complicity lays right at their feet because they did nothing to stop him. They did nothing to get him out of jail. He said, and then who is the righteous one? You guys are the ones that put Jesus on the cross. You received the law as ordained by angels, yet you did not keep it. And then in verse 54, it says, Now when they were cut, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. And we saw this before. What does this mean? It went through the dead part all the way down to the living part. You see, what, what had happened? What did we see over in the previous chapter? A great many of the priests had become believers. There was still something there. God was still reaching in and saying, you need to... You need to know Jesus as the Messiah. 
there was still a piece of them that had the opportunity to hear that. That was the living part. And it says, they began to gnash their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called to the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Do you think God was moving? I would, when I get to heaven, I'm going to say, hey, how many of the priests got saved that day? Can you imagine? They're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Some of the other priests, it says a great many of the other priests have have already become believers. They're standing there. They see an interaction with heaven. We don't see very many of these. We saw it with Elijah. We saw it with Jesus. When heaven opens... And did you notice there's a very interesting statement here. It says it twice. Come on. That Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father. Do you know that's unique to this situation right here? Every other place when you see Jesus at the right hand of the Father, what is he doing? He's sitting. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Why is he standing? He's calling Stephen. He's saying, all right, Stephen, you have preached your message. You have done everything I've asked you to do. And now I'm going to bring you home. Sometimes we have to scratch our head, don't we? Uh, You know, Stephen could have been another Paul. But God says, no, I've called you for this specific purpose. To preach to these men. And to preach especially to one man. We are introduced to a man by the name of Saul. And we're going to see what God does with Saul. He said, you've done your job. I believe there's another reason, and it's found in Matthew chapter 10. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. I believe that when Jesus was standing by the throne 
he looked over to the father and he says, Father, meet Stephen. I'm bringing him home today. And I want you to know he has confessed you before men. I believe that's why Jesus was standing. You know, there's a lot about heaven I don't understand. I wish I did. There's some good books on heaven, and and sometimes as I read those, I kind of look and I say, God, what's it going to be like when you call me home? Now, I'm hoping, what? I'm hoping that I get to go up in the resurrection. I'm hoping that I get to go up in the rapture. when, When God just just comes in and says, hey, Ben, come up here. I hear the trumpet. And I'm going to see all kinds of people rising up with me. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then all of those who remain will go up. I'm ex- I-, I want to go that way. But you know, if I don't, I know there's going to be a day and God's just going to say, Ben, thank you. you. You're done. You're done. You've done everything I've asked you to do. Come on up. And I don't know what that, that's going to look like, but I, I'm a hugger. I'm a hugger. And I fully believe with all my heart that when I get to heaven, Jesus is going to come and he's going to open up his arms. Just like he did for Gene. And he's going to say, welcome home. Now I don't know how long I get to stand there in that embrace, but I hope it's a long time. And then the other thing I hope he says is, well done, good and faithful servant. Because of all the things I could ever ask God to do for me is to allow me to be faithful. Allow me to be faithful to the end. To finish well. My daughter and I were on a raft trip. And in the quietness of uh, the evening, sitting beside the Deschutes River, my daughter asked me, Dad, what is the one thing you fear? And I was a cop for 31 years. And I don't know whether that played into what she was asking. But I remember thinking for several minutes, just sitting there, what do I fear? And I turned to her and said, I fear doing something that would cause God to put me on a shelf. That would cause God not to use me for the rest of my time on earth. That frightens me more than anything. Because my heart and my soul is that I want to serve Jesus until I take my very last breath because that's the example he set for me that was the example he set on the cross